My name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. Uh, I'm really glad that you are joining us this morning to worship. Uh, whether you are a first-time guest or you call the Oaks home, I'm grateful that you are here. Uh, our theme for the year as a church is make, mature, and multiply. Uh, we want the last instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples, the the Great Commission, to be our first priority as a church. Uh, so what does it look like for us to be a church that makes disciples, uh, for those who don't yet have a relationship with Christ, to mature as disciples as we grow, as we're conformed to the image of Christ uh, in response to his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us? And then what does it look like for us to be those who multiply disciples, to invest our lives into other people so that we can help others grow along in their faith? And so uh, grateful that you are here, that we were able to hear Laura's story and that uh, that is one story of so many uh, that are represented in the room right now. Uh, well, we have some exciting news as a church. I mean, what a week it's been, right? I mean, let's just think about what has taken place since I was standing right here at this time last Sunday. We had 13 baptisms that we got to celebrate with our church family. Yeah. So, um, and then on Friday, uh, was it Friday or Thursday? Thursday, Thursday. Uh, we closed on the building. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, had our, our first work day yesterday. For those of you that don't know, we purchased a church building over in the Silverton area, just about six minutes from here. And, uh, and so we had our first work day yesterday, and we're going to work as fast as we can uh, to be meeting in that building. We're so grateful for the way that the Lord has sustained us and provided that space for us to uh, call home, because um, our heart is not just to say like, oh, like we made it, we have a permanent church facility, uh, but honestly to plant roots in our city because God has called us here, and we want to have a presence throughout the week so that we can minister to people. So uh, we're already dreaming. What does it look like for us to... Uh, uh, you know, ha have partnerships with the local school. And I mean, Drew's already made some connections there. Uh, what does it look like for our space to be the community space? Um, you know, we're dreaming about opening like a free counseling center and all these things, right? So we're just trying to keep up with what God could be doing, but we're really, really excited about uh, what, what the Lord has in store for us in the future. Um, now, if you have your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and find Titus the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1, uh, we, will, we will kind of be, as we say at the Oaks, reading the envelope today uh, before we dig deep into the letter. And so uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Uh, we're calling this series The Trellis, and, uh, and that's, that's for, for good reason, and I'll try to explain some of that uh, as we dive in here. So if, if you know my wife well, then you probably know one of her favorite hobbies, and that is gardening. Uh, not gardening like plants that you can eat, but gardening flowers, like a cut flower garden. Um, I mean, I guess you could eat them if you wanted. Nobody's telling you not to, but the, that's not what her garden is for. It's for, you know, plants that uh, she can cut and give to her friends, um, that she can cut and put all around the house. And so uh, she has this cut flower garden that she's had in the past few years that she begins planting right now. And, you know, it has up to like 50 blooms at one time. And you just cut them, and then like the next week, there are more flowers there. It's amazing. Uh, so we have those all in the backyard. Uh, we, we haven't done that yet, but that is in store. We have a cut flower garden, but we also have these potted plants uh, that are called mandevillas. Maybe you've seen those before. They're uh, these plants, they start in a pot and then they kind of grow up viney with flowers and just kind of cling to whatever is around them. 
whenever you purchase them, they come with a small trellis. Uh, so if you've ever seen a trellis, it's kind of this wooden structure that is in the pot, and it's designed to support the organic growth of the plant as it, you know, grows up, extends its vines, uh, you know, leaves are branching out, flowers are blooming, all of that. Uh, so what we do is we, we take the plant, uh, we take the supporting trellis that is about two foot tall, and we put it right up next to these posts that we have on our back porch. Uh, then we take those posts and we tie string around them, we put nails around them, so that as that plant begins to grow, we can begin weaving it through the strings. We can uh, wrap it around the nails. And it's almost like a challenge every single year uh, to see just how high the mandevilla can grow before winter comes. Uh, and so it's like been a, a goal the past three years to try to get it up and over the post. Um, we like almost got there last year. Uh, so check in with me at the end of the summer to see how far we made it. But it but every time I think of the Christian life and I look at those plants on our back porch, I'm reminded of just how similar it is. Uh, that there is this organic growth that takes place in the plant and at the same time that for that plant to grow in a healthy way, there needs to be an organized structure that supports it. Uh, that there's this organic growth that is taking place as uh, the plant gradually gets longer and uh, has new blooms that develop. And at the same time, there is a trellis, there is a support system that organizes that organic growth. I return to this picture because both organic growth and organized structure support is a part of the Christian life. Let me give you a couple examples. So we would say, uh, God's word is living and active. Like as, as we hear God's word, as we spend time meditating on God's word, our faith is deepened, our affections for the Lord grow. We long, we desire obedience. That feels very organic. And at the same time, we, we carve out times in our schedule, you write it down on a planner, devotional time, tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., you use a Bible reading plan so that you can daily spend time immersed in God's word. And that feels more like a trellis. There's organic growth, organized support. At the same time, we think of you know, something like a statement that most of us would agree with. We believe what the Bible says. We believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. So, so we believe what it says. And, and yes, that, that feels more organic. And at the same time, because we desire to be biblically faithful Christians, uh, because we want to be a church community that is centered around the integrity of God's word, we developed a statement of faith that is full of scripture so that we can say, this is what we believe about who God is. This is what we believe about our call to missions throughout the globe. Uh, we have this statement of faith just to say, hey, this is what we hold to as the Bible has taught it to us, both, both organic, that this is what God says about himself through his word, and at the same time, creating a support system so that we can say, hey, this is what we believe about the Bible and, and what the Bible says. Think about the two great commandments that Jesus gave, right? Love, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, loving your neighbor as yourself feels like something that, hey, as a Christian, this should just come naturally, right? Go and do it. But we also recognize that there needs to be a context for this one another love. 
And so a part of that supporting structure in the life of our church is something like our missional community groups throughout the week so that there is a time written on your calendar so that you can share a meal with a fellow believer for encouragement and to be built up so that you can study the word of God with others so that there's accountability and prayer with other people. We want to love one another, but one of the ways that we can structurally foster that is by having serve teams with volunteer positions or something as simple as writing your name on a connect card because we wanna help you move from being an acquaintance to an active part of our church family. You see, organized is not the enemy of organic, disorganized is. And sometimes we can almost have that, that belief that, well, if, if you try to organize something, if you try to create like this trellis around something, it's just gonna choke out the life of the plant. And yet what we see is that what would truly choke out the life of the plant is to not have any structure at all, but to just let it flop over on the ground with nowhere to go. And so we see that uh, the, the Christian life is, is so much like that trellis in our backyard. Think about it. The posts, the string, the beams, the nails, they don't make the plant grow. None of us would argue that that is what makes the plant grow, but they do provide organization as the organic growth of a healthy plant occurs. And the reason that we are going to study the book of Titus in such great depth is because the book of Titus in many ways acts as a trellis for the Christian life. Because in Titus, what God is doing through the pen of Paul as he's instructing the person of Titus is he's telling him how to organize things in Crete. Uh, They spent some time doing mission work there and there was this mass number of conversions, people who came to faith in Christ. But then, then Paul said, okay, I need you to put into order what took place in, in Crete through the local church so that people can continue to grow, so that there's a healthy organizational structure around it. And so what we see is that God has designed the local church to act as a trellis that guides the growth of every person's relationship with the Lord. Now, so, so maybe you're thinking, okay, so if that's what the book of Titus is about, then, then why should I really study it? Well, why is it worth maybe the next two months of our time? You're saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm not like a church leader or anything. Maybe this is a book that's just kind of for pastors and you figure this stuff out, you tell us or just operate that way and that'll be totally fine. But what we're going to, going to see in the book of Titus is that uh, learning the, the design of the, the way that God has structured the trellis teaches us a lot about God himself. It's important because some people might come to the conclusion, well, I don't need to uh, belong to a church. I don't need to really be immersed into a Christian community because as long as I am good with God, then, then that's good enough. But the book of Titus is going to show us that yes, the Christian life is personal in your relationship with God, but it's not individual. The context of the Christian life is a community of believers. Why is that so important? Because I know as well as you do, whenever I look at my own life, that it is so easy to slip into false beliefs about something just because your mind becomes an echo chamber within itself. It's really easy to overlook our own sin and to have blind spots in our life. It's really easy for us to selfishly gravitate toward even a self-focused Christianity. And so we need the church. We need this trellis to enable our growth in our relationship with the Lord. 
Now, some of you might be familiar with what a church does, but maybe you're like, well, well why do we do it? Well, why do we spend so much of our time in the Sunday gathering focusing on the Word of God and, and preaching? Isn't there maybe a, a more creative way to get this thing across? Uh, maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, I, I know that we're saved by grace, but what is the relationship between being saved by grace and not our works, and yet good works still being important in the Christian life? That's some of the things that Paul is going to talk about when he writes to Titus. Maybe, maybe he's, he's thinking, maybe you're thinking, why is it so important for us to aim to be a church that is diverse generational, generationally, ethnically, in, in so many ways? Paul is going to talk about the beauty of that and its importance in every believer's life as we walk through this book. I also think this book is helpful because the book of Titus displays the grace of God. It shines a spotlight on just how gracious God is. Think about who's writing the letter and think about who is receiving this letter. Who's writing the letter? Paul. Uh, Paul, who we also know as the book of Acts, as we saw last week, was Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a self-righteous Pharisee. He was a Jew who thought that he was right with God because he aimed to keep every single command of God. So focused on himself that it seemed like he would never see who Christ was. He's one end of the spectrum. Titus is on the other end of the spectrum. You can probably tell from his name, he's not a Jew. He was Gentile. He would have grown up in a home where idols were worshiped where you know, he would have been as far from knowing who the true God is as you could absolutely be. And yet, what do we find? That neither one of them are out of the reach of God's grace. That for the self-righteous who's trying to earn their standing with God based upon their own works, that God saves them with his grace. And for the one who is far off and rebellious to God, chasing idols, that God can track them down and save them with his grace. Which leads me to the question, if God can make a persecutor into a pastor and an idolater into an ambassador of his grace, then what could he do with you? What could he do with you? What could he do with those in your life that perhaps right now you're thinking, ah, every conversation ends with, with them rejecting Christ or you know, I just, I just don't know if they're ever going to receive the gospel. I know through conversations we've had, some of you are heartbroken right now over family members and parents and friends and roommates and coworkers. And what the book of Titus shows us as we look at both the author and the recipient is that no one is too far from God's grace. And if there is still breath in their lungs, then there's still the hope of salvation for them. So be encouraged. Finally, Titus gives us a pattern to emulate and replicate. It's interesting that whenever Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he told Timothy, what you have heard from me entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And I think there he's giving us each a pattern as we seek to apply the Great Commission, that what we have received from others, what we have been taught, then we would go and teach others. This is true not only of us as individual believers, but also as a church. So Paul is writing this to Titus, who is his companion, who his, is his son in the faith. And he is simply showing what happens whenever people become Christians, when they place their faith in Christ, whenever they are redeemed by the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross, and then whenever they 
are created, formed into a community of faith. So in many ways, as, as I stand here and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what would you have for the Oaks as we look at the book of Titus? The thought came to mind that this is an invitation both to look back and praise God for what he has done over the past six years and to look ahead and ask that what he has already done, he would do again by his grace. By God's grace, in this room, we have seen the Lord save people from their sins and equip them to serve him in various ways. You who were once, maybe you would have said, I'm unfamiliar with the message of the gospel. Now you have been equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit in you to live as an everyday missionary to the world around you. As a church family, we've been built up together. We have prayed together and we have witnessed God answer the bold prayers of his people in his kindness. There have been moments that as a church family, we have rejoiced with tears of joy at one another's weddings and at the birth of our children. And there have been moments that we weeped, that we sobbed on one another's shoulders as we bear the burden of how difficult life can be at times. This is what it means to be a faith family. This is what we're going to see unfold throughout the letter of Titus. We get to rejoice as those who were once wandering from God become a part of the family of God. We look at the way that God has designed the church to be multi-generational and ethnically diverse so that as we grow in appreciation and affection for one another, we know God better. The older are able to be spurred on by the younger and the younger are able to learn from the wisdom and experience that God has given the older. And so as we look at this book, we praise God for what he has done and we humbly ask that he would do it again, that God would do it again. As I was thinking of of different analogies for the book of Titus, three came to mind. One, the book of Titus is almost like a photo album, right? To be able to, to think, okay, this is what happens whenever, you know, the gospel takes root and the Lord is doing things in the life of his church. And so it's an opportunity to look back and to put names and faces with some of the, the things that, that Paul is going to write to Titus. He says, hey, make sure you put godly elders in places of leadership. And it, it causes me to praise God for the men that he's, he's brought up in this church that I didn't even know seven years ago. Uh, whenever I think about the way that he, he talks about refuting false doctrine, I say, God, thank you for a church that loves the word more than just the ideologies of the world. Whenever I read through Titus 2, and it's talking about the relationship between different believers where they're investing in one another, I can look through this room and say, like, yeah, that's how he is, is pouring into him and how she is pouring into her. And man, this is the fruit that I'm seeing in this person's life. As I look at chapter three and it's, it's saying, hey, this is how you live in the world. This is how you be a light to those around you and make much of Christ. I praise God because that is how he's doing it. It's a photo album that helps us to celebrate what God has already done. It's also a map to say, Lord, would you continue to do this in our city and throughout the world? that as, as you're talking about a city like Crete, would we dream about what might be the next place in, in Cincinnati 
that you would raise up leaders, that you would plant another healthy church? Lord, would you send a group of us over to northern Kentucky to, to plant a, a new church to reach new people? Would you send a, a group of us out into the east side or up to Dayton? Lord, what would you do that we would be obedient to as you seek to take your global mission throughout our city and around the world? that it's both a map for what we hope is to come and also that it's, it's a handbook, right? I mean, we believe, we firmly believe that the local church is God's plan A for receiving glory and making himself known throughout the world. And so as those who want to be a part of both of those things, as those who want to be obedient to the Great Commission and bring glory to the Lord with renewed commitment, and a courageous self-emptying obedience to his mission, we say, Lord, our deepest desire is to make much of you. So however you would do that, let it be. We want to be obedient. So now that you know a little bit of why I am so excited to study the book of Titus, I wanna give you kind of an overview of what the entire book is about. If I could summarize it in a single statement, it would be this, that the good news of Jesus saves us, sends us, and sanctifies us. You guys knew it would be alliterated, right? We do this every week. The good news of Jesus saves us, sends us, and sanctifies us. And each of these things are, are present in the book of Titus. I mean, uh, chapter one, we're going to, to get this, you know, important picture of, of the gospel that saves us. It's going to be right there even in, in verses two and three but also that it's a gospel that sins. That's why they were in Crete. And finally, it sanctifies. There's this, there's this relationship between our belief and our behavior that is woven throughout the book of Titus. But it shines a spotlight on just how interconnected those two aspects of the Christian life are. Now, I probably don't have to convince you at this point that I've loved spending time preparing to study this book together but I don't want to overemphasize the practical nature of the book of Titus so much that I minimize just how devotional and awe-inducing the book of Titus is, of how it, it brings us into a greater knowledge of who the Lord is. That there will be moments as you're reading this book that you are wowed by the grace of God. Uh, if, if I could kind of explain how I've felt going through this book. It's almost like um, biting into the best chocolate chip cookie that you have ever eaten and at the same time reading the recipe card for that same chocolate chip cookie, right? That's, that's what's going on. It is both a, a taste and see kind of experience. Or to use another analogy, it is like beholding a priceless portrait and you're staring at it and you're like, man, this is amazing. The brushwork, like I'm not an artist, so I can't fully understand this, but just imagine like you're beholding this beautiful priceless portrait, but at the same time, the author or the artist rather is standing there with his arm around your shoulder, right? So, so we are understanding the goodness of God in his design for his people. And at the same time, we're in the presence of God as we experience that. It's like, Lord, thank you for revealing yourself through your word that we could know you. Thank you for sending your son 
You sent your only son for a sinner like me. I thank you that even though there have been moments this week that I am ashamed of because they don't reflect who you are, that your grace is continually working in me, that it is a taste and see, that it is both understanding the work of God in our lives and understanding how God works in our lives and around the world. So with that being said, let's read Titus 1, 1 through 4, just to kind of get a gist of what we'll be studying for the next couple months. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted to the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. All right, so what we're going to do now that we've read that, we know the author, we know the audience, and we're going to see the application. So that's, that's the book of Titus, right? Chapter 1, 1 through 4. This is author, audience, and application. Whenever we begin a new book at the Oaks, uh, you, know, you guys know that we like to do this. We like to read the envelope. As, as we say, because whenever you're checking your mail and you're thumbing through the envelopes, uh, you are going to handle a Duke energy bill different than you're going to handle a card from one of your parents, right? You, you, you think about it differently before you even look at the content of what's in that envelope. Well, at the same time, we want to understand the envelope before we get into the meat of the letter here. All right, so who's the author? The author is Paul the Apostle. Now, as we saw last week, uh, Paul, uh, who we also know as Saul, was converted on the road to Damascus. So when is he writing the letter of Titus? Well, he's writing the letter of Titus roughly 30 years, three decades after that conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And that's going to be really important because that means that this was one of the last letters that the apostle Paul wrote. And so so here he is writing, he's writing to kind of instill these truths into the next generation, into Titus, his companion in the faith. And if it's okay with you, I want to just kind of look at the trajectory of Paul's life, because I think this is going to be really important for understanding who Titus is, the relationship they have, and what we see in the contents of this letter. Now, the book of Acts and the collection of Paul's letters gives us a good picture of what his life looked like. Uh, There are some things that we don't know, but we have a lot of details that we can go from. Uh, It proves that God kept the promise to make Paul a missionary to the nations, uh, that he spread the gospel throughout his part of the world, to the ends of the earth, as we would say. Now, if you're reading the Bible reading plan through the book of Acts and you're going to see these things unfold, I would highly encourage you, uh, maybe if you're not even doing the Bible reading plan, just to read through the book of Acts uh, sometime soon, maybe a chapter a day, just to get an idea of what God was doing here after the conversion of Paul. Now, shortly after Paul's uh, conversion, he was sharing the gospel in the synagogues 
in Damascus. And what happened? Well, his life was threatened. Uh, you know, they were, you know, Jews there that wanted to kill him. And so he escapes. He goes down a wall. He's, uh, you know, lowered through a basket. And then during that time, he goes to Arabia. He spends three years in Arabia. Uh, Galatians 1.12 actually tells us that that is whenever, uh, through a revelation of Jesus Christ, he was taught the gospel in detail. Uh, we know that the disciples were with Jesus for three years, so is there a parallel here? Um, who can know? But we do know that through the revelation of Christ, he received the gospel and then would become a chief among the apostles. So he was um, there Came to, came to Jerusalem. He spent some time with Peter after his time in Arabia, just a couple weeks. And then uh, once again, his life was threatened. So he escapes to Tarsus, which was his hometown. Uh, then after that, he goes to Syria and Cilicia. Uh, now it was probably some, at some point there that he met Titus uh, as, as a Gentile person who came to faith through the ministry of Paul. Now, we know that because in Galatians 2, verses uh, 1 through 10, he says that whenever he was back in Jerusalem, it was he and Barnabas, but they also had this young guy named Titus with him, who he was kind of, you know, teaching and walking alongside. Uh, and so that parallel in Galatians is really helpful for us. Uh, it's important because they're back in Jerusalem, but now Titus is an example of someone who did not partake of the covenant rite of circumcision as was required by Jewish law. But here we have Paul the apostle saying, Titus is not only a Christian, but is fit to be a leader in the church because he has been completely saved by the work of God and not the works of his own hands. So in many ways, Titus is going to become a model of what the truth of the gospel is. And that's going to play into, um, in a big part, in the culture of Crete and what that would mean for Cretan Christians. Uh, even so, Paul wrote to Galatia saying, look, you, you don't need to be circumcised. You're not saved by the works of your hands. Uh, this is who Titus is. This is the story. Well, they're in Jerusalem, and then uh, there's this council that takes place, uh, Jerusalem 15. And it's all about um, what is the importance of the Jewish law in the Christian life. And, you know, the, the, all the apostles, the council of uh, church leaders was unanimous. We are saved by grace. Uh, we are saved by faith in the finished work of Christ alone through his death for our sins and his glorious resurrection. In those you have eternal life. It's not about um, obeying rules and regulations and those kinds of things. So with that agreement taking place, thank you guys for sticking with me through this, Paul goes on his second missionary journey. Uh, whenever he's, you know, he's going to different places, he's writing more letters, and then Paul goes on his third missionary journey. Now this is important because while Paul is on his third missionary journey, remember he's already spent a lot of time in Corinth but things were rough in Corinth, right? The church in Corinth, they had received the gospel, but then they started living like the world. And so Paul is continuing his missionary journey, but he needs someone to go and organize things in Corinth because he had had a really painful visit there, as he says in 2 Corinthians. So he sends Titus. So Titus goes and he, he deals with the conflict. He kind of brings organization to what is taking place there in this church. And Paul continues. Now, now some, some, at some point during this, Paul was 
arrested, uh, kind of in the, the third missionary journey. Uh, we saw last week that he appealed to Caesar. He was brought before King Agrippa uh, as he was going to Rome by ship. We know that he was shipwrecked, and, you know, that was obviously, you know, a whole thing. But eventually, he got to Rome, and whenever he was there, he was placed under house arrest. And for two years, he was under house arrest. This is whenever he wrote the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now, the book of Acts ends without us really knowing the exact details of what next took place in Paul's life, but it seems that after two years of house arrest, he was released uh, to be able to go on like a fourth undocumented missionary journey. It's not in the book of Acts. Uh, We don't have it, but we can kind of piece together what we have from his letters to know that he went and did more missionary work in other places. Now, during that time, during that after house arrest missionary journey, Paul and Titus would have gone to Crete, the small island in the Mediterranean Sea. And as they were, you know, teaching the gospel there. People were becoming Christians. People were being saved. And Paul says, okay, I'm going to continue. Uh, We know that Paul went on to Macedonia and then to Nicopolis, but he leaves Titus there. And he says, okay, what God has done here, I need you to put into order. And so, you know, Paul knows that Titus is skilled at handling conflict. It's what he's already done in Corinth. And so he goes on. Now, Paul is writing. Uh, He wrote to Timothy uh, in Ephesus. He wrote to Titus from Nicopolis. He most likely wrote First, in, First Timothy and Titus at the same time, uh, which is why you have those two letters having so many similarities. And so we'll kind of pull from both as we go throughout this series. But as he's, as he's there um, or through this journey, eventually he is re-arrested. Uh, he's taken to Rome. This is whenever he's going to write the letter of Second Timothy, his very last letter. Well, think about what's going on in that time period, okay? Nero is the emperor of Rome. What has happened? The great fire of Rome. Who did Nero blame it on? He blamed it on the Christians. Persecution is at an all-time high this second time that Paul is arrested. And so what's going to happen? Under the, the command of Nero, during that time period, Paul would be beheaded, that he would be martyred for his faith. But I want us to see Paul's legacy, right? The gospel doesn't stop whenever Paul is beheaded. Though Paul loses his life, we see that his legacy continues because he invested in these two young men and many others, into Timothy and Titus. His work continued through him. The work of the Lord continued as those he invested in. And the question for us as we reflect is, will our legacy outlive us only if we make a gospel impact in the lives of others. The joy of having eternal life is is being able to welcome others into eternal life with Christ, that we would invest in others that they may make the gospel go forth as well. And so the question would be, well, if, if you were to look at this letter and see it as a pattern to emulate, who are you investing in? Who is investing in you? Are you pouring into the kids in Little Oaks or maybe even into your own children? Are you spending time not just giving people advice from your personal experience, but deepening someone else's relationship with the Lord through the word and prayer? So that kind of gives us a background of the author. Not only that, the audience. The audience is Titan, Titus and the Cretan Christians. 
Now, just so you kind of have an idea of where Crete is on the map, I want to show you a picture. Uh, so like I said, Crete is in the Mediterranean Sea. It's roughly 160 miles from, you know, east to west, uh, anywhere from like 7 to 30, 35 miles north and south. And so not a huge island, but a big island nonetheless. There were several cities. Uh, it's most likely that as Paul is writing this letter to Titus, there were several churches throughout. Um, later, this would be called the city or the, the island of a hundred cities. Uh, most likely at this point, you have like 20 well-developed cities. And so it's likely that Paul and Titus did ministry in each of those. Now, this letter was written to Titus uh, because he came to faith through Paul's ministry. Paul's going to call him in verse 4, as we saw, a son in the faith, which means they were very close. But we also have to think about the Cretan Christians that would have been receiving this letter as well. Um, now, as I said before, Titus was the perfect pastor for the Christians in Crete, and that's because there was this group, as we will see, that were called the Judaizers. And so what they did is they would say, okay, okay, so yes, you're saved by the gospel of grace or by Jesus, but if you really want to please God, if you really want to make God happy, then these are the festivals that you need to practice. Uh, these are the commands that you need to keep. These are all the dietary laws that you need to have. And this is the way that you should think about, you know, the rite of circumcision or other things like this. So these Judaizers were teaching, like, if you really want to be on God's good side, you need more than grace. You need more than the gospel. You need to do all of these things as well. Well, Titus was living evidence that that was not the case. We know that Judaism was a big part of Crete because even whenever you read Acts 2 and you see the day of Pentecost, a part of the group that was present on the day of Pentecost were those who were from Crete. So perhaps even some of those people went back to their hometown and kind of spread some of the seeds of the gospel that we would really see take root when Paul and Titus were there. But if Judaism had an influence in the Cretan culture, pagan idolatry had even more. Uh, so if, if you look at just kind of the Cretan religious background, it was so steeped in Greek mythology and idol worship. There's a lot of temples there. Um, it was the alleged birthplace of Zeus, the Greek god. And so they were really proud of that. Uh, they were really proud of being the birthplace of Zeus. And, and what you look at or see whenever you read Greek mythology is, is you see that uh, Zeus was not, not a great character. Right? He often deceived humans. He manipulated them. He was a liar. Uh, even though he was kind of a, a savior-like figure in their false religion, uh, you know, he, he was still not a great guy. And what we find in, in Crete with some of the arguments that Paul is going to go against and seek out here is that it, the old saying is true, you become what you behold. And so whenever you look at the, the Cretans, we see that, you know, Paul will, will say that they, you know, quoting one of their own poets, that they were liars, they were, uh, you know, evil beasts, they were lazy gluttons, like they, they lived their life for themselves. They were slaves to their own desires. Now, it's interesting that you then have these two groups of people become Christians and they're in the same church. Right, so, so you have those who would say, uh, you know what, like Christianity is almost just an extension of Judaism and you have to keep all of these rules and regulations and it's good that Jesus came for us and so now we can be saved, but then we still have to do all this stuff. So that's one end of the spectrum. 
But then you have all of these other people in the church who are kind of like, man, like you can live however you want. Uh, thank goodness for God's grace. So now that I've been saved by grace, then I can just kind of keep, you know, living however I'm living without really worrying about growing in godliness. Well, it's to that group of people that we will read Paul, write Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He says, the grace of God has appeared. And what does it, what does it accomplish? It brings salvation for all people, for Jew and Gentile. How, how are we saved? The grace of God. It appeared. Wait, well, what about the grace of God and circumcision, or the grace of God and keeping these dietary laws, or the grace of God and Paul says no and. The grace of God is what saves you. Who does it save? It saves all people who trust in Christ. And so then you can almost see the people who are more like on the licentious side of things, seeing like, hey, see, none of that matters. Live however you want. But then Paul says no, because the grace of God also, verse 12, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He's correcting both errors. What he is saying here is that yes, you are saved by the grace of God. You're given eternal life, but you will live differently if you have this eternal life within you. Godliness is the result of joyful obedience, not reluctant obligation. And if you've received this grace, then you will live differently. A grace of God, the grace of God, the gospel, is, is the road in between these two ditches that perhaps you're familiar with. The one ditch, let's say the ditch on the left, is legalism, right? So in order for God to be happy with you or for God to accept you, you have to do all these things. You have to check all these boxes, right? So you're thinking, oh, if I, if I miss my devotional time or if I forgot to pray before I ate my lunch, like now God's mad at me and I've got to earn my favor back to him. No, that's, that's legalism, right? That's, that's not... That's not the gospel. But at the same time, license or licentiousness is, hey, I'm free in Christ. I've been saved. Great. I'll watch what I want, do what I want, when I want. No big deal. Well, I mean, sure, I shouldn't do that or I shouldn't have done that. But hey, God is gracious and forgiving. So no big deal, right? And yet the gospel says, if you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, it should be evident in your life. If you are rooted in the gospel, then the fruit of your life should bear the fruit of this relationship with Christ. And I think it's also worthy of mentioning that Paul was a good missionary. Think about it. He was a Jew, and so he's going to address the, the Jewish Christians or the Judaizers in a way that makes sense to them. But he also knows one of the, the Cretan prophets and poets well enough to be able to quote it to meet them where they're at. As someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit, armed with the Word of God, he is able to teach both of them about the grace of God. And I think that should be the, the aim for every Christian, to be both theologically grounded and culturally engaging. Right? It's, not, it's not one or the other, right? It's not like, well, we really want people to know the gospel, so well, we'll remove things like hell or the reality of sin. Like, if we want to be like culturally engaging so that people will, will hear this message and, and have their lives changed by it, then maybe we should change it. No, it's not one or the other. We also don't want to say, well, we're theologically grounded, right? And because we believe that the Bible is true, then, you know, we're not even going to worry about how, how the person in front of us might perceive it. No, we want to be listeners and learners. We want to be those who, 
So yeah, both of these are important and wise, to be both theologically grounded and culturally engaging. With that being the case, who is your Crete, right? Who is your Crete? Who has God put in your life? What does it look like for you to contextualize the message of the gospel without altering the content of the gospel? What do I mean by that? Well, think about, think about the person maybe in your life that you're really praying that the Lord would save. What is their current worldview? What is, what is bringing pain in their life? What are some of the doubts that they currently have about Christianity or who the Lord is or what the Bible says? How can you kind of think about their religious background and the fact that, hey, if you, know, if you say that Jesus is God, to someone who currently has a polytheistic, pluralistic, pluralistic background of, of gods, then they'll say, okay, that's fine if he's one more. No, you have to say, Jesus is the one true God, and there are no other gods. You have to, you have to think about that. We take the person into consideration, which means we don't just make gospel presentations to people. We have gospel conversations to make much of the person of Christ to the person in front of us. We see Paul doing that here, and we see it as important for our lives as well. Finally, the application is instruction and formation. Right, uh, so right now, our youngest son, Charlie, he um, decided to like skydive off the bounce house the other day and ended up with a broken foot on Easter. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, but now he's in this boot that is correcting his foot. And so as his bones heal, he's got this thing that's shaping it, forming it. What we see here is in, in the book of Titus, we're given instruction and formation, right? For all the fractured places in our lives that the book of Titus, the gospel comes around us to conform us to the image of Christ. And what we're going to see is this relationship between orthodoxy, what you believe, and orthopraxy, the way that you live. Uh, the, the relationship between belief and behavior and just how much that matters. Because if, if you can discuss the intricacies of the theories of the atonement and your belief is really strong, but you're not kind to your spouse, then how well do you really know this gospel truth? If, if, if you're someone who, who says, yes, this is, you know, what I believe about the word of God, you say, well, but how is that reflected in the way you live? Paul is going to clarify the gospel message as he explains the relationship between belief and behavior. And so the question here is, where are the gaps between our belief and our behavior? We often say at the Oaks that uh, healthy Christians grow and growing Christians change. And so that's what we desire that the Lord would do. We know that not all of us uh, start at the same place or grow at the same pace, but we know that the gospel brings growth in the Christian life. So what does that look like for us? As we reflect on this book, we see the grace of the gospel on display, and we seek to be faithful to the gospel as it is explained in the book of Titus. As I was considering just this book, and this is, we're, we're going to pause here, I was reminded of Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower and the seeds, and you might be familiar with it. We're talking a lot about the growth in the Christian life. But we know that growth ultimately comes from 
the planted seed of the gospel. And so as Jesus is speaking, he explains that there are, are four different types of soil. The seed of the gospel goes forth, but there's the first soil that whenever it hits the path, birds just come down and eat the soil and it doesn't take any root. But then there's, there's a second soil, which whenever it is, whenever the, the seed falls on this soil, it's rocky. It's a rocky ground where, where it really can't take root. So it springs up immediately, but then there's nothing else there. And then there's another soil that's kind of thorny. And so the seed falls, but then as it starts to, to grow up, the thorns choke it out. But then there's a fourth soil. It's a good soil that receives the word in repentance and faith, that receives this gospel truth and is forever changed and then multiplies and yields fruit in fullness. And then the disciples say, well, Jesus, what is this? What do these four soils mean? He says, well, the, the first one is, you know, they hear the word, but it doesn't even go in their ears, right? Satan snatches it away. The, the second soil, the rocky ground, is that person who, and they believe at first, but then life gets hard and they say, you know what, this, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to follow the Lord. The third soil, the, the thorns, is the person who, whenever they, they first hear the gospel, they're like, hey, this is great news. And they begin to, to say, I, I wanna follow Jesus. And for a little while, it even looks like it. But then gradually over time, the cares of the world begin to distract them and they, they no longer have what looked like faith, which was actually just false, but they, they no longer are walking in, in this way that seems like they were walking with the Lord. But the fourth soil is the soil that hears the message that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life, that God sent his perfect son to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we should have died on the cross. And that any who believe in him will have life in his name because he lives again. And those who receive that message by repentance and faith are those who are given new life in Christ. That seed is planted in the soil of the gospel and we begin to grow. So a couple of questions that I would ask you is, where are you at? What soil are you? Where are you at on the trellis of your relationship with the Lord? What are the next steps of your growth? What supports might you need to put in place to continue to foster your growth and your relationship with the Lord? Where are the gaps between your belief and behavior and where could the root of the gospel produce fruit in your life? I'm excited about walking through the rest of this book with you. I'm grateful for this time. Let's pray.